All right. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter uh, 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. And I want to ask you again to bear with me uh, this week for two reasons. One is I had an oral surgery this week and I have a mouthful of stitches, a little bit of swelling. And I know you're not supposed to call attention to that. But listen, I don't know how I normally sound, but I'm a little self-conscious that I sound like Daffy Duck. Uh, you know, that uh, there's some things going on here, and so if I drool or, or, or something like that, just uh, bear with me. I didn't think John would appreciate a last-minute call to, to preach. And so uh, the other reason I want you to bear with me is the passage that we're going to look at, though it's one account, and I think it must be handled together. There's so much in it, and we can't cover it all. We can't do justice to it. I mean, volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on just individual phrases of individual verses. And the passage that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. And we'll step through it in a couple of different chunks and think about these things. And I would invite you, uh, if you're not already, uh, to read along in the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark with us this summer as we're going through it and, and just taking some of the major highlights and moves in the book. How many of y'all have been reading in the Gospel of Mark since we started this series? That's, yeah, great. I see a few hands. And uh, so invite you there to read along with us. I don't really have a road map. You know, we're just looking at some of the major things. Um, you know, tomorrow, as we already said, as Americans, we are celebrating Independence Day, which commemorates July 4th, 1776, when the Second Continental Congress ratified made official our Declaration of Independence. This act officially confirmed that the 13 colonies here would no longer exist under the tyranny of Britain and King George III, and so they made it official. So Independence Day, certainly Independence Day, you know, there's, there's uh, fireworks, and those are visible and audible reminders of the Revolutionary War of the battles that ensued because of this Declaration of Independence, that the price was paid, a steep price was paid for us to be the United States of America, to win our independence. This holiday, when we see those fireworks, maybe it's a reminder that freedom, as they say, is not free. That it's very costly to gain and then to maintain. Our freedom doesn't come free. It's at a great price. Just like our freedom, the freedom of our country, the independence of our country, I, I'll tell you so many things that we receive or achieve in this life, they require sacrifice. They come at great personal cost. Every day as I'm leaving the house, I drive by a, a house there on our street, and so often there's a father and his son, and, and uh, they are baseball fanatics. And that father is teaching his son the art of baseball, and they're pitching, and they're, and they're batting, and they're doing things. And I thought, man, that's a dedicated dad out there at 100-degree weather. He's got this bucket of baseballs, and he pitches them to the kid up against the house. The kid hits them out into the pasture, then they have to cross the fence and go gather up the balls, and they do it again and again. And the goal, I assume, is to achieve greatness in baseball for the son. Great musicians. They practice long hours, they master the craft, they run the scales, they listen, they train their bodies and their ear and their eyes to the music and to the instrument which they hope to master. Lawyers, doctors, scientists, academics, they forego frivolity in pursuit of academic rigor, of study, and it comes at great cost. You have to give up something to achieve something. That's just life. 
And today's text is going to show us that it is no different in the Christian walk. Our Christian freedom, our salvation, and our discipleship are costly. They come to us by the cost that Jesus paid, and then it is forwarded and carried forward at great cost even to those who would be the disciples of Jesus. So Mark chapter 8, we're on our summer journey with Jesus, and today we're going to look at Peter's confession and true Christian discipleship. Jesus is teaching on the crucified life. So again, there's much here. Let's jump right in. Mark chapter 8. Let's read verses 27 through 30 as we see the confession of Jesus as the Christ. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do uh, people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel, it is a great uh, lush place, a beautiful place there in uh, what was the tribe of Dan, now the Golan Heights, there at the base of Mount Hermon. And a place was one called time Peneus or Peneus, has a rich political history. Even the name Caesarea Philippi has uh, political connotations. Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Tiberius Caesar, and then Philip or Philippi was Herod the Great's son, Philip the Tetrarch. And so the the name has uh, political connotations. Also, Caesarea Philippi was a hotbed, if you will, of various religions throughout time. It it was, if you were to find a place in America that you could think about being that way, maybe it would be Salt Lake City, a very specific religious hotbed. Well, this was a place where all sorts of religions and worship had taken place. Herod the Great had built a temple there for really emperor worship. He had built this great temple in honor of Caesar Augustus. They called it the Augustium. There were shrines there built into the rocks, into the bluffs, where people would worship various deities, carved there into the rocks, these little niches, and and they would put the statues or the idols there. They worshiped the Greek god Pan there. The Canaanites worshipped a god called Baal Gad, the god of prosperity or happiness. So all of this worship was taking place there. Many people believe that Caesarea Philippi was a gateway, if you will, to the underworld. It was the place, it was like a porthole where the various spirits, demons, and gods entered into the world. That was the imagery that would come to your mind as you thought about Caesarea Philippi, and yet it was a very beautiful place. Lots of trees and oasis and things like that. Some have written that Caesarea Philippi was kind of like a red light district because along with all of this pagan worship, there were all sorts of debaucheries that took place there, sexual and otherwise. And so for the Jew, for many of them, To be in Caesarea Philippi was to feel like, I don't know, I don't know, where would you go today? Maybe uh, you think about Beale Street in New Orleans or something like that. Just just a place that's kind of known to be debauched where people are going and sinning and all kinds of immorality there and spiritual evils. Just the kind of place that gives you, as they say, the heebie-jeebies as a worshiper of God. 
And this is where Jesus brings his disciples for their biggest exam to date, the midterm exam, the one that you can't move forward without getting this right. And along the dusty roads, they're very possibly in the very shadows of that Augustium, that temple of Herod, maybe very possibly looking onto the rocks where all of the remnants and vestiges of pagan idol worship have taken place. Jesus asked his disciples, what do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? Well, some are saying John the Baptist, Elijah, and some say you're a prophet. That's the first question he gives them. But the second is the more important one, and it is this. Who do you say that I am? To his disciples. But what about you? You've heard all kinds of things. You, you've watched. You've followed along to this point. What are you thinking? Who am I? What am I? Who do you say that I am? And I would say to you today that there is not a more important question in all the world for you and for me and for anyone than this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Some would say a good man, some a some, uh, uh, um, crusader for justice and all of this. Who do you say that Jesus is? The church and Christians today and throughout history have spent a lot of times noodling around with what I would call secondary questions. There are secondary questions, things that, things that occupy our time today. We ask things like, what do, you th what do we as Christians think about critical race theory, systemic injustice, abortion laws, gender and sexuality? What do we think about church shootings, COVID shots, monkeypox, inflation? What do we think about government? What do we think about Joe Biden, Donald Trump? What do we think about all of these things? There are so many questions that we could ask, and I'm not saying they're totally unimportant or irrelevant, but I would say they are secondary questions that really can only be dealt with after we've dealt with the first question, for the first question helps us to answer all of the secondary questions, and that is, who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter says, the Messiah. I think he's speaking on behalf of the other disciples. He's kind of their uh, maybe self-appointed spokesman. I don't know. Kind of, well, I'll answer for us. We think you're the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who has come from God to save people from their sins, to restore the kingdom of Israel to its greatness. We think you're the Messiah, the one who's going to usher in the very kingdom of God on earth. That's our answer, Jesus. That's the right answer, by the way. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. God has shown you this. You are blessed because you have been shown this. And if we give that question right, the right answer, and understand who Jesus is, that he is truly the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, came to the world. There is none like him. None will ever even be close to him. Then it helps us answer all kinds of other questions. Question one, should I be concerned with the church? Well, if Jesus is Lord and Messiah, and he says, I've come to build my church, then as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, we're concerned and we're a part of the church. What about the Bible? Should I believe the Bible? Jesus believed the Bible. He believed it was the very word of God come to us. Jesus answers that question. So if he is Messiah, that's what he believes. As a follower, that's what I believe. Should I prioritize and make time for prayer in my life? Did Jesus do that? He modeled. He taught us to pray. He told the church to be about the ministry of word and prayer. And so we dare not say that prayer doesn't matter. It answers questions about God's design for gender and sexuality and marriage. Jesus affirms, and I think it's in Mark chapter 10, what about, what about divorce? Jesus, tell us about how God views these things. And he answers a whole bunch of questions right there. God has created you male and female. 
And then when you undertake marriage, husband and wife, you're to leave your father and mother and cleave to one another. And he answers all kinds of questions about the goodness of marriage, male and female and so on, about the value of children. You know, our country is embroiled, one of the biggest questions, and I'm a little bit shocked that the church is even having to have this debate with some saying that abortion maybe is an okay thing and we're in this Roe versus Wade stuff. Well, what does God think about children? What did Jesus say about children? Suffer the little children to come unto me. Surely, if Jesus values children that much, then the birth of children, the coming And the protection of children in the womb matters to God. It matters to Jesus. Jesus affirmed that. And so if Jesus is Messiah, he's answered that question. A lot of other questions. How do we treat our neighbor? How do we relate to government? Should we pay our taxes even when our government is wayward? How do we invest our money? Think about money. How do we love people? What is justice? And on and on and on it goes. And if we get the first question right, namely who Jesus is, It's going to answer a whole lot of those other questions, and we really don't have to debate it very much. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter got it right. Have you gotten that right? Have you answered that first fundamental question? It really is the portal into Christianity. For if you only believe that Jesus was a philosopher or a good teacher or a guy in history who made a splash for a little while, but he was just a man like us, he really is not any more important or any more wise than any other philosopher or teacher or revolutionary, then you fail the midterm exam and we can't go on in the course any further with you. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Savior And he says, you got that right, Peter. And now I'm going to reveal to you what the messianic ministry is. There is this little thing, especially in the Gospel of Mark, called the messianic secret. We even see it here. And it's people getting a glimpse of who Jesus is. And then all of a sudden, instead of him saying, now go out and tell everybody, he says, no, don't tell anybody. It's kind of an odd thing, and I won't go too far into that. But one of the things is, I think that Jesus doesn't want misunderstandings about the messianic ministry, to begin to proliferate. Once people understand he's the Messiah, there's something else they need to understand, namely what the messianic or the Messiah's ministry entails. And now that is what Jesus is going to teach Peter and us about. Because it's not going to be what they thought, this great political leader who's going to take the reins from Herod or whatever. Not going to to, um, go and fight against the Caesars. He's going to do something altogether different that to this point has really been held a mystery. And that is found in verses 31 through 3. The messianic ministry of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So let's read that. Picking up there in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise from the dead and he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. Now his uh, identity as the Messiah has been clarified. He begins to say, and this is what the future for your Messiah looks like. Rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. That is the Jewish people. Not only that, killed, but raised from the dead. And Peter, 
We'll have none of that. It doesn't fit his paradigm or what he's thinking the Messiah is going to do or supposed to do. It doesn't sit well with Peter. So the same guy that has basically just said, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, you are the Son of God, he pulls the Son of God by the arm and says, let me tell you something, son. We're not listening to that. You're not going to do that. We're going to protect you. We're going to maintain your safety and all of that. <laughs> he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus turns to all of his disciples and he rebukes Peter right back. Maybe one of the harshest rebukes you could think about for a person who wants to be a follower of God or is to call them Satan. And he calls Peter Satan. <laughs> and he says, you don't have in mind the things of God but instead the things of this world or the things of man. You know what? We want to say, yeah, Peter, what kind of idiot do you have to be to just call this guy the Savior and then rebuke him? And yet, it's a reminder that our instinct for self-preservation runs so deep. We want to preserve our safety and our well-being and our reputation and our place at the table in this world and our prosperity this was a prosperity worship place, by the way, Caesarea Philippi. Baal Gad was all about personally prospering in this world. And we want to bypass anything that's difficult, hard, or sacrificial so often. It's just in our nature. I tell you, my whole tooth ordeal is that very thing. You would not believe the amount of money and time and trouble I have spent trying to save one widow tooth. And it's in the back. I know I can do without it because I don't have one on this side in the same place. But I was like, you know, I really want to keep that thing if I can. Self-preservation. Self-preservation. It is an instinct that is in us. And when Jesus announces that the future looks like a cross and a death and being hated by my very own people, then Peter is recoiling at that. But I ask you this. We're on this side of the cross. We know a little bit more than Peter understood at that point. Without the cross, where would we be? Without Jesus going to the cross and paying for the sins of the world, taking the punishment and the wrath of God on our behalf, where would we be beyond this life? If Jesus had not redeemed us from the enslavement to sin, where would we be? Had he not paid the ransom hanging over our head for our former allegiances to the prince of this world, where would we be? And ultimately, even if Jesus brought about a temporal kingdom that made life cushy and easy and fun and pleasurable in this life, but did nothing about death, where would we be? They didn't understand that. But the fact is that Peter's instinct toward self-preservation and to keep Jesus from the cross was a threat to thwart the very thing that Jesus came to do. And so Jesus shows them, begins to teach them, though they don't get it all at once, that the messianic ministry is more than just temporal prosperity. It has eternal significance beyond this life things in the spiritual realm that are unseen and so the last thing we're going to look at today in verses 34 through 38 is now Jesus insistence 
on the crucified life as the way of the Christian. Let's look at verses 34 through 8. And he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. This is the essence of true biblical Christianity, though it's not maybe 21st century popular American Christianity. This talk about picking up our own cross and following Jesus, denying ourselves. Hear it from the very words and lips of Jesus. This is not me. This is uncomfortable to me to hear. But there's something that we need to hear here. If anyone would follow me, if you're going to walk on this path that I'm walking on, if you're going to be a part of this thing, hey, Peter, hey, he's looking at all of his disciples, not just Peter at this point. He says, you've got to pick up your cross, your death instrument. Deny yourself of your pleasures and freedom and security and comfort and follow me. Mere religion is not what you need. I think that sometimes we even as Christians think about, you know, people need religion. They need a comfort. They need just, just a, a group of people where we can come and pray and have good thoughts and have donuts and all of that. People need more than that. Jesus' insistence on going to the cross and then us picking up our cross actually says to us, man, there's something big going on here. There is a radical spiritual battle going on in this world, and Jesus is going right into the middle of it. That's why they're going to kill him. There is a battle in this world, and so he's calling us. Join me in taking up arms, spiritual arms. You need to realize, and I need to realize, there is a wreckage of the human soul and of this world that is so profound. It's far beyond self-help gurus and religion. There is a hell. There is a Satan. There are false religions. There are all kinds of things. It's a battlefield. And Jesus calls us into that. Caesarea Philippi contained a place that the people called the very gates of hell. And so if you go over to Matthew, and in the parallel passage, where Jesus says to Peter after this confession, talks about building the church, and he says what? And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I'm calling you as my followers to do what I'm doing, to take up arms against the very gates of hell, to storm the gates of hell. We're not very comfortable going into dark places and uncomfortable things and saying and speaking Words of God to people that don't want to hear it. And that's the very kind of thing Jesus is calling these people into. He's calling us into. And it requires personal sacrifice and commitment and dying to self. You know, it's been pretty easy to be a Christian in America for quite a while. Because most people seem to vaguely believe like we have. 
but we're pretty much to a point where it's going to begin to cost. If you are going to speak the truth, and I mean, sometimes people just get offended by the very fact that you say to them something about sin. You're judging them or you're doing whatever, and they're not going to like it. They need it. They need to hear it. But many will not like it. And they'll defriend you and they'll cuss you and they'll say all sorts of things about you. Might try to get you fired from your workplace or whatever. And, and we have to ask this question. So I'm, I'm grappling here with this idea of what is Jesus calling us to? What's he even talking about? Deny yourself. Is he saying I shouldn't have that extra donut? Do I not need that sixth cup of coffee? Is that what we're talking about here, Jesus? Deny myself of just some of the, the, the whipped cream and cherries in life? I don't think that's what he's talking about. It is our orientation to the world. Are we willing to be mocked, laughed at, defriended? Even for his disciples, he was talking about, you're going to lose your lives for my sake. And so you can't go on this journey, you can't join the battle until you're willing to pick up your cross and understand the nature of what I'm calling you to. Are you all with me here today? He said, you got to pick up your cross, you got to die to self. Before you can ever get on board with this thing that I'm doing, You've got to come to this point. You've got to cross this threshold. Are you willing to die in a thousand ways? I'll never forget one time uh, in, a, in a college classroom at a college, uh, Christian college. I was just talking to some students. It was in an agricultural class. And I was talking to them about salvation and the need for salvation. I thought if ever there was a place where this message would be received and... I had some students who came to me afterwards, and here's what they said to me, basically. I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close. Hey, we get enough of that crap over in chapel. We don't need it over here, too. It offended them to tell people that, that the essence of Christianity is not just reaping the benefits of a free education or whatever. The essence of Christianity is you are radically lost, and you've got to hit your wagon to Jesus, or you're in trouble. They didn't want to hear it. And you will find people in, in churches that don't want to hear it. Some of you may not want to hear it. And you're thinking, this guy's a hater. He's a, he's a bigot. He's narrow-minded. Yep, yep, yep. Now, I'm a lover, but I am pretty narrow-minded because I think there's a narrow way that leads to life. And Jesus opened it. But I'll tell you this, I'm just glad there is a way. I'm glad he made a way. And I want to help people find that way. But it is narrow. It is narrow. And so Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross, and then you can follow me. When you've died to self. When you realize Jesus is not a prosperity preacher. Actually, he is. He's preaching an eternal prosperity that costs us much in this life. My whole tooth deal, that's been what this thing has, has been about. I want eternal prosperity of this tooth. I want it to go to the grave with me. And I have been willing to undergo torture and pay for it. And pay for it. I will say the dentist tricked me. I had no idea what I was getting into this week. He tricked me. But Jesus says, I'm not going to trick any of you. The cost of eternal life and leading people there in the short run is going to be great. The cost is great. It's going to cost you. It's going to be painful at times but it leads to life.
Ray Vanderland wrote this, and I thought this is worth sharing as we close this thing up. Here's what he wrote, talking about Caesarea Philippi and this episode going on with Jesus and his disciples. Listen to this. He says, Jesus' followers cannot successfully confront evil when we're embarrassed about our faith. Jesus knew that his followers would face ridicule and anger as they tried to confront evil. And his words came as a sharp challenge. No matter how fierce the resistance, his followers should never hide their faith in God. In a city filled with false idols, Jesus asked his followers to commit to the one true God. Jesus didn't promise an easy life, but he delivered on the promise of salvation, the only kind of prosperity that ultimately matters. Today, Christians must heed these words, especially when we're tempted to hide our faith because of embarrassment or fear. Our world is filled with those who have gained the world but lost their souls. If we hide our faith, they may never find the salvation that they need. And I think that one of the primary reasons that our witness is not very effective, and I'll, I'll throw myself in this, is we've lost sight of this teaching right here. That if you're going to follow me and be in this battle, you've got to decide. Are you going to put on the uniform? Are you going to pick up arms? Are you going to lay down your temporal comforts and join the effort? But listen, there's something that we could miss very easily here, but we need to see it. That the crucified life is the one that leads to resurrection. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be betrayed and hated, and they're going to kill me, but I will be raised from the dead to eternal life. And he says that for us. If you would lose your life, actually you'll find it. But if you're so consumed with, with maintaining your temporal comfort, you'll actually end up losing your life. life. For what does it profit? And, and I think this is a question we need to close on today. What does it ultimately profit you? If you don't go the way of Jesus, you gain everything that this world can give you and you lose your eternal soul. Is that a wise move? No, it's not. And so, the way to life is the way of the cross. It's to come to Jesus to lose our life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. And what will look like a tragic waste to the world, a, waste, a wasted life. Oh, man, that guy's become some kind of religious nut. Oh, that man, that, that lady, she had so much potential in this company, but she had to go and start talking about this Jesus stuff. Man, that person, I thought they were my friend. But they're calling my lifestyle a way of sin. That's the kind of things that will happen to us. But for me, I'd rather have eternity. I'd rather have life and life abundant that comes with Jesus. Back in 1776, this was the difficult decision for the colonists, for the citizens of this place. Do we maintain our allegiance to George and to Britain and endure the tyranny but maintain our comfort? Or do we strike out on our own and pay the high cost that will come with freedom in this nation? And they knew. 
there's a reason that many people shrunk back because they knew it would mean the losing of homes, the pillaging, the loss of sons, daughters, lands, titles, and positions. They knew it. But for them, ultimately, it was worth the cost. How about you? How about you? Are you willing to forgo this world's comforts and pleasures for a season? To be hated by some, to be faithful to the cause of Christ. Are you willing to do that? It's the only wise investment choice you can make. Today, I just want to invite you and trust Jesus. Pick up your cross. Set your face like flint, like Jesus did, to walk down the road that God has for you. Bear the cost, but always looking for the eternal glory that is ours when he comes in glory with his angels. Would you bow with me today? just want to have a time of, of invitation and response for you to deal with this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Has God revealed to you that he is the Savior of the world, the Son of God who has come to usher in the eternal kingdom of God? If he has, trust him. Take up your cross and follow him. You've got to wear the colors. You've got to put on the uniform. There are no secret agents in the kingdom. Profess Christ. You need to profess Christ as your Lord. And you do that primarily through believer's baptism. You come and you let the world know. It's public. You let the world know that you're trusting Jesus, that you belong to him, that you're dying to self in the belief and the hopes of eternal life and resurrection. If that's you here today, would you just commit to the Lord to make that known? That you're committing to Jesus and His way and to be baptized, to become a follower openly of Jesus Christ. Who do you say that He is? Maybe you're struggling with some things that you know are not fitting of the kingdom of God. Maybe you're embroiled in, in some lifestyle of sin or something is plaguing you. I would ask you this question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Is he your Lord? Be willing to lay it down. Lay it down. Offer it to him. Pick up your cross. Walk the path of righteousness. If you're here today and you've been kind of a secret agent Christian, people in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, they really don't know you're a Christian because you've never said anything. But you know they need Christ. Would you commit yourself to just being a public Christian, to being a witness, to praying, and when the opportunity comes, to speak. To speak boldly but lovingly. We're not here to condemn and to hate, but to tell people about the life in Jesus. Would you commit yourself to that today? Father, do a work in us so that you might use us to do a work 
in this country and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces to bring about revival, to bring about salvation, to bring about a change towards the kingdom of Christ. I pray for a boldness, a courage, and a willingness to follow you in whatever the path that you're leading us in, wherever it might lead, whatever it might cost. Lord, we count the cost. We recognize you say there is a cost. And by faith, we trust you and walk down this road. And help us always, Lord, to keep our minds and our spiritual eyes on the resurrected and ascended Christ who overcame death and the grave and will lead us into eternity. We go out from this place, Lord, hopeful, knowing that whatever befalls us, when we belong to you, we are eternally yours. So fill us with hope and joy as we leave this place today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.